call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to Call It Friend, or the podcast where usually two friends watch a film decided by the flip of a coin. We're still on holidays this week, so myself, Andy G. Ritchie, and my co-host Donica Tiernan will be talking separately about what we watched. Follow us at Call It Friend or Podcast on Instagram to keep up to date with the latest happenings. Well, it's me first, I suppose. Before I could say a word, she said, my name is Sandy, and this year is my puppy dog. This week I watched a few films and a couple of episodes of a new TV series. First up is Tom McCarthy's Stillwater. The day you left for Marseille, I drove to the airport. I went to the gift shop and I saw this necklace. It was gold. It said Stillwater on it. I thought it'd be a little piece of home to take with you. This is the film which is generally being discussed as a fictionalised version of the Amanda Knox story, something which has drawn the ire of Knox herself. Around a month ago, she put out a big thread on Twitter, basically calling the filmmakers a bunch of bastards. It stars Matt Damon in a real departure from his usual roles as a quiet, sorrowful roughneck out of the titular town of Stillwater, Oklahoma, uh, less asking people if they like apples. His daughter, played by Abigail Breslin, is in a Marseille prison convicted of murdering her Arab girlfriend. The film revolves around Damon's attempts to find the real killer in order to free his daughter, and also his blossoming relationship with a single mother and her young daughter, Maya. I really enjoyed this film. It's not short. The runtime is around 2 hours 15, which really lets the film breathe, I guess, but... A tighter edit would probably have made a better film. Overall, I enjoyed spending time with these characters. Being tied to the Amanda Knox story has probably harmed this film rather than pushing audiences towards watching it. I think it may have turned them off a bit, especially with all the Amanda Knox stuff that's come out in the last few years. I remember there was a Netflix documentary, among other things. But the film is about a lot more than that and actually reminded me a little of the two Jacques Audiard character pieces we already watched on the podcast, Deepan and Rust and Bone. And I would say this would be better if it was a Jacques Audiard film. It's directed by Tom McCarthy instead. McCarthy has a very good track record as a director, having received significant acclaim for films such as The Visitor and Spotlight. His first feature, The Station Agent, is one of my all-time favourites and a film I'd recommend to everyone. Peter Dinklage plays a dwarf in it. However, he also directed The Cobbler, starring Adam Sandler, which clocked up a few Razzie nominations. I haven't been brave enough to watch that, but I've heard it is utter shite. McCarthy, of course, also portrayed journalist Scott Templeton in season five of The Wire, giving fake news its start. Thanks for that. Thanks, Tom. One of my main takeaways from this film was just how pre-COVID it feels. It was filmed in 2019 and had its 2020 release date pushed back. I say pre-COVID because Abigail Breslin's character is doing a nine-year prison sentence, of which she's already served five at the start of the film, meaning she only has four years left to do. I think now audiences see that like, oh, really, you're going to do four years, four more years in prison, four years in a Marseille woman's prison. Like, Where do I sign up? I'll go now. I'll do it now. I'll go right now. Stillwater's in cinemas, probably, and uh, in Blockbuster, definitely, because that's where I got it, folks. Next up, I watched a documentary from last year, Class Action Park. This is an HBO documentary about Action Park. 
the New Jersey Amusement Park, which was mainly open between 1978 and 1996. Those were the fun times. That's when all the fun stuff was going on. Action Park consisted of three distinct areas, the Alpine Center, Motor World, and Water World, which were all equally deadly by the sounds of things. The film features a variety of talking heads, mostly New Jersey natives who grew up going to or working at the park every summer, talking about some of the insane shenanigans that people got up to. I spent at least three quarters of this film just pissing myself laughing at some of the stuff that went on. It harks back to a time before health and safety, kind of how I imagine China to be today. It's it's kind of reminiscent. Of the water park sections, I guess, are similar to uh, The Way Way Back, if you remember that film with Sam Rockwell. Um, also kind of similar to Adventureland with uh, Jesse Eisenberg, except in reality, some of the stuff that went on in this park is just no one gave a shit. The owners, the staff, the people who went to the park. It's just fun times, fun times. Chris Gethard, the stand-up comedian, is particularly funny in his reminiscing about visiting a place where he expected to leave injured as a child of the 80s. It was all very familiar to me, and I miss that. The final quarter of the film is far more sobering and focuses on the deaths which occurred at the park. Really, uh, when you see that section of the film start, that's a good time to turn off because it's fun times. It's fun, fun times for three quarters of the runtime. And then we get the sob story at the end. We don't need that. We don't need that. Just remember the fun parts. The film is a good companion to the Woodstock 99 documentary we discussed a couple of weeks ago because this, the past it looks like a much rougher place, but, but by God, does it look more fun too. Finally, in my role as a Marvel apologist, I rewatched Avengers Infinity War before watching the first two episodes of What If, the new Marvel Phase 4 animated series. This was my first time watching Infinity War after having seen Endgame, I think. And the film is much, much stronger in the context of the completed saga. It's extremely ambitious. It's funny. I'd forgotten some of the classic lines like Drax's Why is Gamora? Some quality acting there. The action is strong throughout and the ending is such a downer. With Star Wars having shit the bed, this is basically the modern Empire Strikes Back. I'd recommend revisiting it if you haven't watched it since Endgame, like I hadn't. On a personal note, my favourite scene is when Captain America turns up on the train platform. As an Edinburgh native, that's not the first time I've seen mutants fight in Waverly Station, I can tell you that. Moving on to What If, this is a nine-episode animated series which ties in with the multiverse direction that the MCU is headed in currently in Phase 4. Based on the comics of the same name, the series imagines alternate versions of events already depicted in the MCU. This means assuming that the audience has a strong familiarity with the material, allowing the writers to twist key moments while abridging a lot of content. Jeffrey Wright is introduced as the watcher and the narrator of the series, and the majority of the voices are supplied by the film actors, including friend of the show Chadwick Boseman. The artwork looks very good... Uh, the animation in the first episode felt a bit stilted, although that may just have been a first episode problem because if I had been judging this solely off of the first episode, I would have been saying it's the cobbler. The first two episodes are vastly differing quality in my opinion. The first episode asks what if Sharon Carter was injected with the super soldier serum rather than Steve Rogers and goes down a fairly standard feminist in World War II avenue that feels a tad played out in 2021 of, you know, like, but she's a woman. How could she do it? 
although the concept of a jingoistic British super soldier feels somehow worse than an American one. You know, Captain Brexit taking back your sovereignty one piece at a time. The second episode is much, much braver, in my opinion, and asks what if T'Challa, rather than Peter Quill, had become Star-Lord. It plays far more with the established narrative. Uh, a high point is Thanos, just being just, just a regular guy, just a member of the scavenger team, not having gone through with his galaxy-having plans. It's fun stuff. We also get to hear Call It Friendo favourite Michael Rooker back as Yondu, which I think is where this medium excels, allowing us to, to revisit characters who have passed on and become friends of the show i'll keep watching this every week it's got a lot of potential i just hope they don't play it as safe as episode one in the rest of the season it has the potential to be more in the loki territory and hopefully it will veer away from the falcon and winter soldier shite baggery that we have also seen anyway that's all for me over to donica Buckingham Palace has announced the death of His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh. So this week, my not being within range of a blockbuster really hit home and I only ended up with access to an old DVD collection of which only three obscure enough titles were working. One is a film which must be seen only to be believed. Second, must be seen because Martin Scorsese said so. And the third must be seen because I said so. Uh, The first was recommended to me by sworn enemy of the show, John Spillane. Italian 1976 grotesque film, Brutti Sporci e Cattivi, I think. Or Ugly, Dirty and Mean, English title Down and Dirty. Those are all the kindest adjectives I can think of to describe this film also. Um, which This film, which I really enjoyed, will never watch again and recommend everyone see immediately. Uh, so it was directed by Ettore Scola, a nice man on paper who was nominated for Best Foreign Film at the Oscars five times in a career spanning 40 years. Uh, This is John Waters doing neorealism gypsy uh, and it only needs to be seen once because there are moments that could hold stead through Alzheimer's. Uh, It's a story of a one-eyed family patriarch named uh, Giacinto who lives in a shack with four generations of his family and whose day-to-day mostly revolves around... uh, being a pervert, getting drunk, and misering over the one million lira he got for losing his eye. Um, I'd be very surprised if Sasha Baron Cohen uh, wasn't a little inspired by this in the creation of Borat. What keeps one laughing here isn't jokes per se, but the constant escalation of the utterly despicable and disgusting at every turn. Uh, the film is as well choreographed as a martial art film at at times, um, as it like pans around Giacinto's one room shack, and you see all different types of kinds of chaos, like w- w- a couple having sex, children running around, a couple fighting, somebody cooking, uh, just er- erupt out of the corners as we go. But it's 
uh, really sequences like the following that stick in one's mind, okay? So Giacinto at one point witnesses his transvestite prostitute son take his daughter-in-law from behind as she dyes her hair in a sink, and he uses this information to blackmail her into shagging him later in the outhouse. This is a scene where they plot another character's death as the mother prepares offal for dinner. Meanwhile, one of the sons... Uh, picks at the raw offal like one would a cake and um, shoves it in his mouth hoping his mother wouldn't notice. It's just messed up. Uh, I saw this completely blind and uh, considering how much I enjoyed it, I might consider my policy on... Um, I might reconsider, rather, my policy on John Waters, which up until now has been um, do not watch any John Waters films. Uh, I did enjoy it, but um, this if anything, deserves one of those parental advisory stickers from the early 2000s. Uh, so, let's see. Next, I continued with the Martin Scorsese recommended British films list and checked out Seth Holt's debut film, Nowhere to Go. Now, if you remember from last week, I watched Station 6 Sahara, which is another Holt film. And uh, though I preferred that, the prime criticism I'd lob at Nowhere to Go is it outstays its welcome by 10 minutes. Now, to me, uh, such criticisms are ultimately usually lazy, but in this case, it's literally all great except the tension is given room to loosen up a bit near the end. It's the story of a man called Paul Gregory, who's a Canadian conman who successfully swindles a lady. A really nice lady, by the way. I don't know whether they're trying to play her as a posh bitch who deserved it but she comes across as really nice and anyway he opts to do the time and collect his score upon release however he gets made an example of and gets a sentence double the length of what he planned and he escapes uh, and spends the rest of the film uh, on a mad dash to escape London with his loot uh, one very interesting aspect of this is despite his good looks he's a he is a fucking hot piece of ass it's difficult to root for him um, just because he's, he just does such bad things and the, his victims don't seem to they're just normal people so basically a regular criminal criminal uh, but we it, that mostly doesn't matter as nothing seems to go right for him Hollywood movies used to uh, add addendums to crime films to teach us that crime doesn't pay and this whole film watches like one of those addendums for uh, Martin Scorsese's money I, I can see why he liked it it's excellently tense up to a point it uses its locations very well and uh, Gregory's dalliances with the criminal underworld feel genuinely dark uh, for some reason it reminded me of Rafifi uh, Rafifi is better watch Rafifi um, and lastly I watched a spaghetti western which genuinely should be regarded as amongst the best of the genre um, the big gun down Mostly if I sit down to watch a spaghetti western, I do sort of tune out. They're for the most part silly fun with predictable plots and funny dubbing. The Big Gun Down could handily stand up beside the Dollars trilogy or any of the big Corbucci films. Uh, it's directed by a guy called Ser Sergio um, Solima and it tells the story of Levan Cleef's Johnny Corbett's uh, efforts to bring uh, Tomas Milianes. Cuchillo, Cuchillo Sanchez, yes, to justice for raping and stabbing to death a 12-year-old girl. Uh, all is not entirely as it seems, and you'd guess where it's going eventually, but by then, you'll be in like Flynn. I was, anyway, so caught up in it. Um, it's, it moves along at such a clip. There's so many different 
you know, spots of adventure along the way. Uh, Solima directed only three westerns in his career, and they're collectively known as the Political Trilogy, which gives, uh, I don't know, I mean, kind of gives the game away a little, but only if you're looking to get, only if you're looking to get played. Uh, I suppose, if you get what I mean. Um, both the leads are terrific. Um, no surprises with Van Cleef, but Tomas Millian I'd never heard of um, before, and I'm immediately planning on seeking out more of his work, starting with the other two entries in the political trilogy, both of which he stars in. The principal draws here, though, should be... <laughs> it should be how much it fucking apes, intentionally or not, the Leone Westerns. And it doesn't hurt that Morricone knocks it out of the park with the score, particularly the intro song is amazing. But also, Salima uses cuts and zooms with the same kind of magical realism storybook quality that Leone made famous with his trilogy. If you're even slightly into this genre, give this a go. Honestly, 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 it could drop Clint Eastwood in there somewhere in the middle and this is a dollars film. Absolutely fantastic. I had a great time with it. We need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. 